Please listen carefully. Hello, universe. Welcome to the Optimist Daily Update. I'm Carissa Garcia. And I'm Christy Jansen, and we are part of the team behind the Optimist Daily, making solutions the news. We bring you solutions news every day in order to change the tenor of news media, social media, and the direction of your day to help us all get focused on what's going right in the world. Seven days a week, we publish positive news stories written by award-winning journalists and delivered online to your inbox and through our social channels. And also, we are sharing these solutions in a commute-worthy, walk-worthy, and home office-worthy podcast. Today is Thursday, June 16th, 2022. Hi, Christy. How are you today on this Thursday? I am well. And I realize we're not just focused on what we can, what's going right in the world, but rather what we can do to help the world go rightly <laughs> according yeah. to what we think needs to happen. Because there's a lot going wrong in the world and it's important to pay attention to those things, but to not oh, feel definitely. overwhelmed by the onslaught of all of the challenges that seem to be out there. Because no matter how many challenges there are, there are th- always actions we can take to address them. So that's what I'm. That's where my mind is at today, Chris. <laughs> Sorry yeah. to get all deep and, <laughs> and thoughtful here, but no, that's where my mind is at too today because of our special guests that we have coming to join us on the pod. Because I think our special guest really embodies that kind of mindset. There's a lot of things we can do. There, there that, are. Yeah. And so, do you want to? Should we just? Should we just? read a little bit about Paul and let everybody know who we're going to be talking to today? Yeah, let's jump in and introduce Paul. Great. And Ariel and I mentioned that we're going to be interviewing Paul Rellis today. He is mm-hmm. a incredible environmental activist who came out of the uh, Santa Barbara area. He was living in Santa Barbara in 1969 and personally experienced the massive oil spill that happened uh, in January 28th of that year, which devastated the coastline, killed so much of the aquatic life and very severely damaged the local economy here in Santa Barbara, California. And this was the transformative event in in the U.S. history. And it was one of the things which kind of sparked the environmental movement. It sparked the establishment of the United States Environmental Protection Agency. It launched Earth Day, other landmark environmental programs. It also launched Paul Rellis's career as an environmental activist, and not just an activist, but uh, one of those solutions makers, you know, sort of a solution change maker in the field of environmental uh, protection and uh, intelligent development. Uh, He was 23 at the time, and he was the founding executive director of the Community Environmental Council, which is a nonprofit that's still very active here in the Central Coast. He helped to establish Santa Barbara as one of the uh, sort of areas of environmental visioning and uh, working for systemic change and how we relate to our ecosystem. He has uh, been involved with very, very visionary projects, various visionary projects, including recycling facilities, urban gardens. He created an urban farm. He cre- he, est- he was uh, one, you know, really interested in green building uh, decades ago. And he is one of those people who understood the need for more of a circular approach to how we use our resources in the way back. He went from being a, a lo- locally based activist and, you know, uh, 
supporting environmental protection to working for the California Environmental Protection Agency, where he helped lead the state's nation-leading recycling programs, which are still going on to this day and now are working in most states, in most communities around the country. After he worked in the government, he became an executive in a private company where he led efforts to deploy technology that converts municipal organic waste into renewable natural gas, a zero-carbon fuel suitable for running heavy-duty trucks and buses. So using the trash that comes in to run the the garbage trucks um, in a sustainable Mm -hmm. way, which is a beautiful sort of circular vision. And this project is meant to serve as a template for an emerging bioenergy industry that can reduce the world's dependence on greenhouse gas, while also greatly reducing methane generating landfills in sort of how how we just throw stuff away and let it rot to then emit all of its, you know, (laughs) negative uh, warming gases into the atmosphere. He also taught in the environmental studies department at UCSB, which both Chris and I are graduates of. Yep. Go gauchos. (laughs) Go gauchos. Exactly. And he's also a fantastic writer. We will be talking about his book today. It really is a great book. It's called Out of the Wastelands, Stories from the Environmental Frontier. It was published in 2015. But if anybody is inspired to get active in, an, in their community to address the environmental collapse, this is a great book to read. He currently lives in Santa Fe, New Mexico with his partner, who is a novelist named Fanny Pierce. And we are so excited to invite you onto the show today, Paul. Well, Paul, how are you today? Welcome to uh, uh, the pod. Beautiful day in Santa Fe. The garden is growing. All right. So you're still gardening then? Yeah, I'm actually doing more gardening now than I've ever done. Okay. So we can talk about that in due course. Yeah. Well, why don't we yeah. start with just let just talk a little bit about your book, which is a memoir told in story form, but it's also really a it's a history of the environmental the founding of the environmental movement here in the Central Coast, which has gone on to inspire environmental activism across the United States and probably in other other communities around the world. Yeah. I'd love to hear how you approached that project, the writing project itself, and what you were hoping to do with publishing that. Well, thank you. And thanks for the good uh, sum- summation of my story <laughs> here. I guess about, oh, maybe around 2008, 2009, I felt a compelling need to uh, write, uh, to put down the stories that are in the book, because often histories are lost and people I reference in those stories disappear over time and you want to keep these things alive. The people who have influenced you and inspired you uh, because it's a transmission of sorts. My, Mm -hmm. it was my time to write stories. Mm -hmm. I had a lot of experience by that time, but uh, putting them down was my compelling need. I spent about 10 years on and off working on that and never had written a book before. So mm-hmm. uh, I didn't know if I could do it. Mm-hmm. As it turned out, it, it I got a little help from my friends and <laughs> yeah. uh, 
I have to say it is very, it's a beautifully written book. And I know you, you're friends with the writer Pico Ayer, who's another Santa Barbara local who's then gone off into to do wonderful things in the world. But it has a lyrical prose that is eminently readable and really invites, invited me in. I really enjoyed reading your book. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Talk a little bit about those stories because you were really inspired to commit yourself to environmental activism at a pretty young age. And it, it seems that it, that a natural disaster launched you into the world in a way that you may not have otherwise gone. And your, your story from when you were in your 20s can be really relatable to people who are now looking at the world and how do they get involved. So I want to talk about your environmental activism, how that started and your reflections on, on that and how it shaped the environmental movement from 1970 until today. Well, the oil spill was my environmental moment. It was the transformational event in my life. I had, at that point in time, say the spill was 1969, January. I was finishing school. I was driving down to campus, uh, and I heard about this commotion on the waterfront. Hmm. Some spill had happened, and there were emergency vehicles that way. So instead of going to class, I went, I always say, I could have gone right, but I went left mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. uh, drove down to the waterfront and looked out on the ocean uh, or this soupy black, once beautiful ocean had become an oil soup and it was wow. appalling and it went forever hmm. and it was the um, largest spill of its kind in the world at that time. So here you have this beautiful resort tourist community and its best resource is ruined yeah. with untold damage coming. Mm -hmm. So oddly enough, I, I, it is in a moment like that, a transformative moment. Uh, some of us may find ourselves doing things we never thought we would do. I never thought of myself as an environmental person or activist. I loved the environment. I was a surfer. And uh, the ocean was very important to me since childhood. And the beauty of Santa Barbara had overwhelmed me. I grew up in Long Beach. It was a polluted place. And I thought, if this place is ruined, then what? Where does oh, yeah. one go? It's like uh, just... I couldn't stand it. Mm -hmm. And so I found myself uh, in within a day in a small airplane hovering over the oil spill. So I remember peering out the window. The pilot was generous. He tilted the plane so I could mm -hmm. look directly yeah. down. And I saw this cauldron coming up out of the ocean. And there was some almost, uh, I can't, described the impact of that sight. It was like staring into the abyss. Mm -hmm. And I went, oh my God, this is going to change the world. Hmm. Yeah. And that change I want to be part of with mm -hmm. no knowledge, no basis really for knowing what to do. Hmm. Um, yeah. So initially 
Uh, I participated in the protests against the uh, use of Stern's Wharf as a platform for oil mm -hmm. servicing. Um, uh, but after uh, definitely less than a year, I found that instead of protest, which was important, I wanted to be a um, problem solver. I wanted mm -hmm. to figure out what are we going to do about this? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, put yourself historically in my place at that time. No EPA, no environmental laws to speak of, no environmental studies department. Yeah. Right. No, I know it, that was the launch of that, but also there was no plan for even how to address the oil spill. When I read that, I was shocked. Well, so was I. I realized, yeah. you know, I watched these workers that were hired by Union Oil to clean up. They, what do they do? They bring straw uh, to um, <laughs> the ocean. They unload straw and they have pitchforks and they try to pick up the oil with these pitchforks. And it was so absurd um, that I'm going, what the hell? Who, mm -hmm. These people don't know what they're doing. They're not prepared. How could you be involved in an endeavor like offshore oil development with the hundreds of millions of dollars invested and have no plan to deal with an accident? And, and I think, unfortunately, that way of thinking has, you know, I, I know that from this, things like the EPA were initiated other kinds of regulations were starting to be in, uh, developed and then enforced, but still we got things like the uh, Exxon Valdez. We've gotten so many other massive oil spills, yeah. the explosion off the, in the Gulf. Deepwater Horizon. The Deepwater Horizon, exactly. Yeah, Deepwater the Deepwater Horizon. Horizon, which was another failure of imagining worst case scenarios. And then how do you, how do you protect against that? eventuality. Exactly. So, okay. Oh, awful. Awful. So what, uh, so that launched your career in the environmental movement and it, it then shaped your entire, you know, you were an activist, you, but you were also a solution finder, a solution maker. How did you approach that beyond the ecology center, which you founded, you just sort of started getting people together. So it was a very grassroots kind yes. of evolution, it feels like, not something you had a plan and you knew how to implement it. Well, you're both graduates of UCSB, so my yeah. The student, um, you know, I, I looked in part to my friends from yeah. UCSB. So we formed a little network of people, some undergraduates, graduates, students, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, like-minded, uh, but then we made linkage with older people in Santa Barbara, and this I can't emphasize enough. Mm -hmm. The community of Santa Barbara, as you know, is very rich in both physical material and uh, quality people who mm -hmm. have done Definitely. things in their lives. And for some reason, there was... Uh, if I could say some of those old legends like a pearl chase mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. uh, which your readers may uh, followers won't know about historically, but she was a great pioneer of planning in California mm -hmm. um, and um, 
probably the number one citizen of Santa Barbara, okay. uh, <laughs> took an interest in our work and other notables took an interest and they helped mentor me. They helped a young person and young people um, get access to resources that we would otherwise not have a chance mm -hmm. having. And Hal Conklin, the late Hal Conklin, mm -hmm. mayor of Santa Barbara for and huge contributor to civic life, uh, he early on came and became my colleague at CEC and a number of others. So, plus, the first thing I had to do was educate myself. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. What is this environmental world that I'm looking into? And at the time, there was burgeoning literature um, coming uh, from great writers around the country talking, you know, uh, talking about population concerns, mm -hmm. uh, early forays into alternative technology, like the Whole Earth Catalog. Right. Um, you had Bar Barry Commoner, Paul Ehrlich, uh, concerned about population. And, mm -hmm. um, and then early studies like the limits to growth out of MIT mm -hmm. that uh, suggested if we continued on the path we were on, we were probably going to exhaust our resources. Right. Which is interesting because now that's coming up again as we look at our world today. And it, it was a, a sensation provoking book when it came out, I think in 1972, but it was yes. yeah. kind of ignored by policymakers largely over the last 50 years. But now I, I see, I see it mentioned quite a bit in the headlines nowadays because some of the projections from limits to growth, Right. Have have really tracked more than more than other economics models, economic models. The other uh, major influence on me was I got, I had a chance to do, and you read about it in my book, uh, uh, an adult ed series. At the time, Santa Barbara's adult ed was one, maybe the best in the whole country, <laughs> and they gave, they assistant dean. Uh, gave me a budget to invite whoever I wanted to Santa Barbara for a, a public lecture series. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I took full advantage of that. And I spent a day uh, with each of these great people. Uh, uh -huh. Bucky Fuller had um, Ian McCard, the great uh, landscape architect and writer. E.F. Schumacher, the British economist, and others including the horticulturalist Alan Chadwick, who I write about in the mm -hmm. story. I profile each of these because I call them the four pillars of okay. the vision that developed from my interaction with them. And and there was agriculture and architecture and, you know, it's sort of a systemic approach to, I mean, Bucky Fuller, who has that kind of systems thinking, right? Everything is inter interconnected. Yes. And you can't just affect change by addressing one of the, you know, just by cleaning up the oil, you also have to clean up the food system. You have to also figure out how we address the waste products that come out of our industrial activities. You also have to address building. And exactly. why don't we... 
why don't we go here a little bit? We this wasn't something we were originally going to talk about, but I want to hear your <laughs> thoughts on the housing crisis in California right now because one of the things that you that came out of the environmental movement in the Central Coast was desire to limit like massive growth, fast growth. Uh, you you write about the efforts to do a big development on the Gaviota Coast, which ended up not happening in in the 70s and is still undeveloped, which I'm really kind of glad about because it's a beautiful stretch of undisturbed coastline that is used for some agricultural, cattle ranching, whatever, but it's very low impact uses if there's any use on it. But at one point that was going to be a massive housing development, which didn't get built. So, but now, you know, 45 years later, we're in the midst of an awful housing crisis in California. And I'm curious to have you reflect on, on that. Well, uh, that was a all-consuming study that we did in 1974 to answer the question, how big should Santa Barbara be? Mm-hmm, I yeah. think a question that all cities, communities should, should ask mm-hmm. themselves. Remember, it's California, so it's it's go-go California. When mm-hmm. I, I think the population when I started of California was probably 12 million and uh, now, now it's like 40, 40 some. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, other parts of the country in the Midwest and sections don't have that issue growth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But here we did Florida, Texas, California, New Mexico, all of all these communities. Just the other day, I was talking to people from Austin, Texas, mm-hmm. and it's going through a California mm-hmm. growth surge. In fact, all the Californians are moving to to Austin. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The housing um, issue is they may have the biggest housing bubble building Mm -hmm. in the the country. But at the time of 1974, when we did the study, the issue of the Gaviota Coast was more or less resolved. Uh, We would have looked pretty much like Orange County. Mm-hmm. If you can imagine uh, the Newport Coast, or it would have been all populated by now, and it sure wouldn't yeah. feel like it does today. Right. So there's an important tension between wanting to preserve nature, uh, beauty, and the need to provide basic resources for people, certainly paramount housing. Mm-hmm. How do you resolve that? It's a very complex subject because on one hand, you can think you can build your way out of the problem, but that presupposes that the housing you're going to build is affordable. Right. And what we Uh studied, California's uh, Santa Barbara is a worldwide real estate commodity. Uh People want to live here from all over the world. So they, they add to the intrinsic pressure Uh, the wealth factor, and now the housing that gets built only has a very small percentage that is affordable. So you can build the housing, have you solved the problem? Some believe, in Santa Barbara's case, that we have a very fine housing authority. It owns about 15% of the housing stock of the community. Mm Mm-hmm. 
if they'd owned more, it's a be, um, then perhaps that's an answer. They build and own more of mm -hmm. the housing instead of relying on purely developers who will set aside maybe 10%, 15%. Right, and only when it's mandated and, and, and exactly. regulated. Yeah. And so maybe what you're suggesting is there has to be more of a public-private partnership between organizations like the Housing Authority that builds for the population who exists here now and who is struggling. And with the major institutions like Cottage mm -hmm. Hospital, mm -hmm. the university, City College, right. uh, the, the businesses that are prospering, they have a role to play as well. And and they, they have a vested interest because their workforce needs to have uh, affordable housing, housing that they can afford to live in. And if you're a nurse or a firefighter or a teacher, even if you have a, those are considered great solid salaries, they're not up to the real estate market here in Santa Barbara. I mean, That's it's right. very hard to afford to buy a house or even to rent one now. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. this is, a, I think, a subject we could spend the rest of the week talking about because it's a, it feels a bit intractable. <laughs> but I want to talk a little bit about your work with recycling because you were one of the early proponents of that approach and mm -hmm. you helped to develop a local recycling program in Santa Barbara which then you got invited to work with the state of California to develop help develop that program and now you know 45 years later 40 years later we live in it recycling has come under some heat for really is it is it the solution that it was promised to be? So I want to learn about your approach to recycling in the in the history, but also your thoughts about it today. Okay, well I'll give you a very um, streamlined okay version. Okay, um, the actual recycling program that I inherited really okay. was started by a guy named Bob Klausner, a transplanted New Yorker businessman, hard edged guy who came into our orbit and helped think through how we could start recycling in Santa Barbara with Hal Conklin. They okay. did the first couple of years of pioneering work. Then Hal became elected official, and so I took over. And I, at first, I didn't want to do recycling. I mean, I, we had the downtown buyback. We called it the buyback center, and people uh -huh. would drive in. This is before curbside. How do you collect recyclables from a community when there's no collection system? Yeah. And so we provided incentives for, we would pay people for their recyclables. And if they wanted to donate to a cause or organization, we'd keep track of that and then give them a check. Um, it was crazy labor-intensive process, but nonetheless, it was the beachhead, and eventually we got property leased for a dollar a year from the city, and from that little beginning, once I got into the recycling world, and I met people in the industry, uh, companies, the paper industry, aluminum 
the different commodities, I found it really fascinating. And it answered the question that the late E.F. Schumacher put in my head. If you're going to be an effective environmental leader, then you really need to know the linkages between uh, the ideas you have and what it takes to build businesses or industries because mm -hmm. environmentalists aren't going to make paper or produce aluminum or uh, any number of other products. So you need to understand that and you need to design your programs um, with that level of intelligence. So uh, gradually, one thing led to the next. By the early 80s, we had taken this little pioneering project and, and started curbside experiment. And then we created a whole think tank called the Gilday Resource Center, which had students or graduates like you or me together with now I was in my early 30s. Mm -hmm. And so I was a senior person at that point. <laughs> uh, we did uh, our, for about five years, we focused on the subject of waste management, how to do it. Building off that little bitty project, uh, we started to venture into, well, how big are the markets for recyclable materials? Mm -hmm. um, are yeah. there problems with quality, price? How do they compete with virgin materials? Mm -hmm. What about, where will the market demand come from? And at that time early on, I went to Asia and saw the future market in China mm -hmm. and uh, elsewhere, but also realized that markets were at the heart of recycling. Mm -hmm. What people considered recycling was just collecting the material. And then finding a, yeah. a new use for it, you know, being, right. being able to sell it into another use stream. So one of the surprises that I found was that there wasn't, much attention given to the market side. Hmm. And if you're a business, mm -hmm. the first thing you look at is market. Is there demand? Where can you sell your product? <laughs> exactly. So yeah, secondary yeah. recyclable materials have to compete at some level with virgin materials. Mm -hmm. And virgin mm -hmm. materials are cleaner, they're mm -hmm. predictable, and mm -hmm. manufacturing generally preferred them over dirty so you had to invest in cleaning it up. And anyway, it surprised me by the time I got to the state and oversaw the recycling programs, I realized we were on a collision course between our appetite to grow recycling. It had mm -hmm. been oversold okay. because the issue of markets had never been fully addressed. Mm -hmm. And I used to warn my colleagues from the dais, that we were going to head to a, um, a real problem if a country like China, which we had become so dependent on, to ship our, our low-grade materials. They said, no more, no more, no more trash. We're not taking more trash. Yeah. <laughs> we don't want all your pollution. Mm -hmm. And they did what they should have done. They cut us off. And for several years... It nearly collapsed the recycling world 
mm-hmm. and caused companies like I, what I was involved with to lose a lot of money hmm. because we were suddenly thwarted. Recycling rates started to fall. They're just stabilizing now, but it was hmm. a two or three year trauma mm-hmm. and uh, a lesson that could have been avoided. Uh, but because recyclables were moving to China, the mentality was out of sight, out of mind, kind of like landfill. Well, they're moving, so is there a problem? Never mind that many mills in China and elsewhere were highly polluting, and we were essentially exporting our problem uh, that we never fully wanted to address. Which is, yeah, that you, the trash is going somewhere and you have to not just pretend that it doesn't exist anymore because you can't, you don't see it and it's shipped overseas and that, and you're, uh, otherwise you have these ma- massive landfill. This is the, the whole throwaway economy is really the problem um, that we live in. And recognizing the constraints of recycling, in, mm-hmm. in other words, just because you want it to be doesn't mean that the, the world of business and industry uh, can absorb this material, mm-hmm. or should they? In their, and so it's much more complex than people tend to think. Mm-hmm. The waste problem in its totality is one of, in my views, the most compelling challenges the world faces is waste. And it's, after all, bad air quality is waste um, released into the atmosphere. Uh, Space junk Mm -hmm. uh, is now a problem. It's all up there now, and they have to avoid hitting it. So the problem replicates itself in every which way. Plastics junk. Uh in the ocean, Mm -hmm. Uh, ingestion of plastics in our bodies, in the fish, in the so forth. Everywhere, yeah. Pollution is waste. Waste is at the heart of the consumer society and the Uh problems facing the world. So I guess we need to rethink waste in, I mean, sort of, and and that's been one of your core uh, approaches is Let's think about waste differently. So uh, finally, after serving seven years in the Capitol, um, kind of as a talking head, uh, I went back to my intrinsic interest in designing solutions to problems. And that's what brought me to the latest iteration, which is anaerobic digestion to uh, recycle organic waste produce uh, compost and renewable natural gas to power trucks from it. Yeah, composting. That's what I was really interested in hearing you talk about, because as you were saying this, I know for me growing up and stuff, recycling was very, you know, reduce, reuse, recycle and all that, but we never really heard about composting. And recently composting has been a big topic in California because it became the law of the land that we're going to be required to compost in our households and businesses. 
And I know you are very integral in setting up composting in Santa Barbara. That's also connected to urban farming. And so I really want to hear you talk about the possibilities of where composting can go and what we can do with organic waste and just how you've been involved in that. Well, composting was a great interest of mine in that urban farm that we built back in the 72. We had uh, a horticulturalist named Warren Pierce who led that effort, and he was a botanist from UCSB. Mm-hmm. He created these compost experiments at garden scale. Uh, so that was my first introduction to composting, and I, I remember turning my first pile and seeing that steam rise and uh-huh. and and thinking about we took this crap and we composted it and now it's sweet smelling a soil product. Like, it's really the original alchemy, isn't it? It's like you're turning, you know, trash into treasure. <laughs> Just like that little recycling experiment that grew, compost grew. So here I am. 20 years later, in the Capitol, taking on a, 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 a contract with the University of California Extension Service to create compost experiments in the big agricultural areas of the state, like Fresno and, and Bakersfield area, Kern County, um, right. up in Modesto, uh, over in... San Juan Batista, mm-hmm. to educate farmers to the use of compost, because if we were going to recycle, we were going to have to produce compost facilities. And so the question is, who was going to use all this stuff? Mm-hmm. If, we, yeah. if we made it, once again... What's the market? Where can you, where can you uh, send it? <laughs> Well, that that businessman a long, long time ago who said, (laughs) the first question you always have to ask is, where's the market? Not, Uh can you make compost? Can you sell it? Where can you sell it? And that's proven to be a very big challenge to compost. And I'll Mm -hmm. take a few moments and tell you why. Mm -hmm. First of all, establishing compost facilities to anyone who's tried to do it is very hard because you have a lot of land and you have odor issues yeah. and transportation costs. And then you have to try to sell to farmers, many of whom don't own the land they work. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. they're faced with paying more for a product that takes years to demonstrate its benefits over right. Instead of fertilizer. just a fertilizer. Yeah. yeah. So you've got that hill to climb. And that's all of that led me to the uh, approach of the anaerobic digestion. And if I can take two minutes. Yeah. And... What, what is yeah. anaerobic digestion? Inform okay. us. Educate us here, Paul. Yes. We want to know. <laughs> so after I left the state and I joined the company, I joined because – I needed a base that had capital to invest in solutions. Um, A nonprofit couldn't do that. The Mm -hmm. state of California doesn't build facilities. So I found an owner of a company who we shared a vision, and he had capital. 
And so I went all over the world looking at options, Australia, South America, Germany. Where do you find your... Sweden. Okay. So I went to Sweden, and that's where I saw anaerobic digestion being used as an alternative to regular composting. I go to Sweden, um, and I'm introduced to the environmental ministry, and I visit several facilities that had been doing regular composting, but they had problems with odor that uh, caused neighbors to complain. So they had to find alternatives to traditional composting. Anaerobic digestion allows you to work organic waste in a closed system to prevent odor from reaching neighbors. And the benefit is you capture the energy that's in the organic waste and you can produce fuel-grade, um, well, they call it biomethane, but essentially uh, methane that can be converted to either gas, a liquid gas, or a fuel. So that added the benefit from composting of A, an environment that could coexist around development, and B, a product called fuel that could run your trucks. So I thought, this is great. And Sweden wanted to do that because they bought natural gas from Russia and they were afraid that they would be cut off. So they wanted to develop domestic natural gas infrastructure. We have a huge natural gas infrastructure in the U.S., but it's fossil right. natural gas. Right. It has a very different source. So how how is the anaerobic digested methane that comes out of out of landfill? How is it zero carbon? Because you said it was zero carbon. How? Because it's still okay. when you burn it, it's going to release those carbon molecules into the atmosphere, isn't it? Correct. But but the way we um, understand an activity is what's called a life cycle analysis. Okay. So you apply a life cycle analysis, and what, what do you find? A, if I produce methane and convert it to fuel at a facility in California, in our case, Riverside, California, Yeah. Mm-hmm. I cut out the whole extraction, uh, like uh, fracking. Okay. I cut out the the mining of the of the resource and the transportation of the resource to California. That's a huge piece of the environmental equation. Well, also by eliminating the 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 seepage of methane from landfill too. You're using it it's That's going to get correct. out there anyway. That's correct. And and the other thing is Another innovation, the truck industry, the engine industry, there's a company called Cummins Westport. And 20 years ago, they started working on natural gas engines to reduce emissions. Well, they've created an engine where the, uh, the emissions from the exhaust 
days are much lower than they were historically. Mm -hmm. So if I wed that engine technology to a renewable fuel, that's how I get to a, a new carbon neutral equation. Interesting. Um, Great. Yeah. Now, now um, we've worked with the California Air Resources Board on where we are, and depending on the effectiveness of the anaerobic production, it might go up or down some, but uh, as of several years ago, we were carbon neutral. We had a, uh, a glitch at one point where we went above that. That's just working out the dynamics of new technology. So we have invested $100 million in the anaerobic system that takes green waste, like at the curb, mm -hmm. and then we clean it up. We have to clean it up a lot because it's dirty when it comes in. People throw stuff into their green bin, and we can't tolerate that in the digester. But our system exists surrounded on two sides by housing about 300 yards away. Uh, and industrial site. So we've operated uh, three years now without incident, without odor, because the whole process, other than exiting the material, is uh, enclosed, completely enclosed and automated. So it's so, actually, it sounds like a really win-win situation. There's no, there's no... Um, down what's the downside why isn't that well, becoming the, uh, the the way of the land why don't we do this everywhere well um i and i thank you for the opportunity to answer that question because a it's a lot more expensive than taking organic waste 150 miles away to a desert or a remote composting site then so you have to invest a lot more capital. Uh -huh. It takes know-how. It takes a certain size site. So my argument would be, I think come anaerobic digestion is a superior way of managing organic waste. But cities that you contract with may agree with that or go, I just want it to go to the lowest cost solution possible. So haul it, haul all of those organics 120 miles or 150 miles and compost it at a remote site. And we'll do that instead of anaerobic digestion. So mm -hmm. California in addressing its organic challenge is going to have a mix of systems, mm -hmm. some compost, some anaerobic. Second problem, there's a desire to get rid of natural gas as a, a fuel, as you know, in the push for all electric uh, conversion. And that's fine and good, except there are no heavy duty trucks running electric uh -huh. that can um, do the job that our trucks do with a natural gas engine. Uh -huh. So. The solution is not electric or 
all gas because we're just a small producer of gas. Just let the trucks that deal with the waste problem run on renewable natural gas and let the rest of the world go electric. Okay. That's fine. And, the, and there's probably other uses for biogenerated methane as opposed to uh, all electric. I mean, these heavy trucks, it's hard to run them on batteries. They're, those well, batteries that's right. need to be we huge. Buy them. We couldn't um, buy them right now to do the job. So this gets down to practicality. And uh-huh. Let me put a big P for the <laughs> listeners to li- listen to my practicality argument. If I have a solution that gets to carbon neutrality today, why shouldn't I use that today instead of wait 10 years for an electric truck Mm -hmm. to be able to do the job that I can do today that I have to defer to tomorrow? And uh, to the environmental community that wants a complete conversion to all electric today when it doesn't exist, make some exceptions Mm -hmm. where you have carbon neutrality. Why wouldn't you want that to happen? Uh Like, and so it's an issue of back to the theory practice, you know, things don't always conform to the way you think they should conform. Mm -hmm. And I can assure you that as we pursue all electric, in spite of my support, I want to see as clean a future as possible. There will be a shadow side to uh, any technology that we develop, including batteries and uh, recyclability and rare earths and all of that. All of that. I mean, it's very complex. And I think we're, you know, that's another show I think, Paul, that we could get into with you. We're Definitely. because we're at the edge of our time and I um I don't want to open yes. up that, but absolutely, I mean, the other there's there are complications with the movement towards electrifying everything. And so, Paul, we have to kind of wrap it up here and we I wanna ask you our final question, which is this is the Optimist Daily, so we have to ask you, what makes you optimistic? <laughs> are there any any Things in the world that you see as really viable solutions or people or what, what, what's, what's, what's sparking your hope these days? Well, um, I'll conclude with, um, you know, I had gone to the UCSB lecture by Elizabeth Colbert. Um, oh, who wrote, mm-hmm. uh, what, what's the name of the book? The, um, well, she wrote the, the sixth grade extinction, but she yes, also wrote, um, extinction. yeah, yeah. It was probably, one of the more depressing moments mm. in my life. And uh, the way I, I deal with it, I was really depressed at times when I thought about the oil spill and mm-hmm. all the books that came out, doomsday stuff. Uh, that was pre-climate change. So, But I felt, God, we could die of pesticide poisoning or litter, or not litter, but waste junk everywhere, oil spills. Um, We persevered through that. Um, We face a daunting challenge with climate change, and I can't say I'm optimistic uh, that that's 
going to be addressed in time. We're out of time. But I persevere. Uh, as I say at the end of the, my, my book, there are a lot of green shoots emerging here and there uh-huh. by cities, not by nationally, by na- national governments or the bigs. There are people take initiative and they do things. Mm-hmm. So if there's optimism, that's where I find it. It's okay. what yeah. people and communities are doing in spite of the lack of attention by their governments. In spite of the intractable policymakers who don't seem to be take, taking any action. That's right. Um, so there you have it. What do you do to keep yourself? Because you, you seem like a, I mean, you are focused on solutions. You don't, you're not letting it uh, weigh you down. Are there any personal practices that you use to, to you know, keep your head above the muck? Well, I've always um, written, I, I write in my journal and I use that as a form of therapy. Um, I think um, gardening has been for me a terrific antidote to the negativity that's out there. I serve, have served on the seat, the Community Environmental Council, um, President's Council. So after 50 plus years, I'm still involved with my friends and colleagues from, so it's a community of interest. Uh, It's a complex answer to a simple question. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I write. The writing, I'm working on a novel, and I really enjoy writing. Mm-hmm. It's a therapy for me. I like that. Okay, well, we're going to end too. it there, Paul. Thank you so much for being here today sure. with the Optimist Daily Update. And uh, your wealth of wisdom is inspiring. Thank you very much. It's been great having you on, Paul. Yeah, enjoy your day. And uh, be happy. Yeah. Be happy. Okay. Well, thanks everybody for listening to the Optimus Daily Update. We'll be back tomorrow with more solutions. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye.